0: The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febc.org. I feel I understand the human
1: toil, sacrifice, suffering, devotion, and courage, bravery you took. And it makes me value what we have even more.
0: Happy Fourth of July to all Americans, and welcome to First Person with our guest, historian David McCullough. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Last week, in part one of this conversation about McCullough's book, 1776, which details one of the most important years in the history of our nation... Mr. McCullough took us through the struggles faced by George Washington and the ragtag army which had been hastily assembled to fight the British for our independence. Part 1 is in the audio archive at FirstPersonInterview.com. Now, Part 2 of 1776. We're talking about a year unlike any other year in American history, but as I said earlier, we understand so little about it. We left off talking about uh, George Washington and this uh, young man that served him so well, Joseph Reed, who suddenly turned against Washington and wrote a letter to Washington's really arch enemy, the man who would have liked to have had Washington's role as general. And a man who
1: had many supporters in Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, Washington was losing. Washington was losing in disastrous fashion, one battle after another. And he was, um, well, if if he, if the war had been covered by the media, as we know it, hmm. he would have been out of there. He gone. And probably everyone would have been against the war because everything was going badly. Hmm. And, uh, uh, but he was a man who, Washington was a man who learned from his mistakes. That's another of his strengths. Hmm. And he was a man who built, who was, there's no other way to say it, he was extremely loyal. Hmm. Loyalty mattered to Washington. Mm-hmm. And here was Reed being disloyal. Um, he, Washington only found out about it because Charles Lee, who received the letter from Reed, then wrote back to Reed saying that, yes, indecision is the worst thing you can have. In a military commander, um, nothing can be so detrimental to military success. You can almost in, read in, between the lines of that in letter. decision, yeah, Yes. Yeah. Well, the letter came, and when Reed was away, and Washington had been trying to get Charles Lee, who was in command of another part of the army, to join him in New Jersey. This is when this is when the war is at its worst. Mm. This is the darkest time. So, in the midst of the darkest time, is most trusted aide betrays him. And he opens the letter and reads what Lee has said the, about indecision. The letter intended for Reed, Washington read. Wow. So Reed, Washington knows right away, sees right away what's up. That both of these men, upon whom he is depending, think he's incapable. Think he's the wrong man for the job. And who knows what all else uh, Reed and Lee are cooking up. And Washington already feels insecure Oh, absolutely. About- he knows that he's failing. He knows that he's commanding a losing army and that many of these dreadful setbacks have been his fault. He, he's aware of his limitations. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so what does he do? He writes a letter to Reed saying, here is the letter which I mistakenly opened because I thought it might be from Lee telling me that he was on on his way with his army. Mm-hmm. I would never have opened it had I not... doesn't say anything. He doesn't... Oh. Later on, later on, he tells Reed, I would have been able to take this if you would, much better than I have or am, if you would come to me and oh. said that to me. But he doesn't fire him. He doesn't ship him out to some meaningless post somewhere else, nor did he fire... Nathaniel Green when Green made such a bad call on whether to try and hold Fort Washington mm-hmm. both men that well, let me first of all by say he's he's repaying his Green's loyalty to him with loyalty to Green mm-hmm. and he's a, and he's repaying Reed's formal former loyalty mm-hmm. to him by remaining loyal to Reed mm-hmm. but he's also, Acknowledging that these are very good young men. And they both
0: move on to significant and achievements. They, and
1: they're and they going to do better from now on. And both of them spend a lot of energy and time and thought on how they can redeem themselves mm. in his eyes, mm. his Washington's eyes.
0: And both continue on and perform better than they ever have. Well, their loyalty to the to the general to Washington must have increased tremendously when they when Absolutely. he forgave them. In yes. essence, that's
1: what he did. Is he yes, forgave? Yes, he them. did. And he and he uh, he knew he he liked, he liked to say, we must take people as they are, not as we would wish they were. Hmm. And uh, you know, if this is what they are, I have I will take them as, and I, because I know their strengths. You know, we often say so and so. He's very human being because he made this mistake or he has this flaw or that weakness, which is all true. That's one of the ways I try to explain to people that these weren't marble men. You know, these weren't demigods we're talking about. These are human beings. Mm-hmm. But we can also. Uh, perceive, understand their humanity when they do things that are extraordinary because that too is part of us. And these, Washington wasn't a great intellectual. He wasn't a brilliant thinker like Adams or Jefferson and he wasn't a spellbinding orator like Patrick Henry and he wasn't a Napoleon. He wasn't a brilliant general. Kind of hard to describe him altogether. But he was a leader. Yeah. He was a leader. People, men would follow him. He had great courage, both physical and moral courage. He had phenomenal health, and I think that's a very important point because everybody's getting sick all the time. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that at the Battle of Brooklyn turned out such a fiasco is Green was sick, yeah. and many people mm-hmm. feel if Green had been well and on the job. A lot of that wouldn't have happened, and I mm-hmm. think that's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Washington, there's you know, epidemic dysentery, uh, uh, smallpox. Uh, Typhus, typhoid. Everybody's getting sick, rampant, losing more people, men from disease than from musket ball or cannon fire. Mm. And Washington's perfectly healthy and strong all the time, and he's got this terrific pressure on him, mm. terrific. Every I don't I don't, I don't know when the man slept, and mm. in fact, I think one of the reasons things were going so badly at the time of Fort Washington, I think he was suffering from insomnia. Oh, I see. He wasn't himself, and uh, he he never he never gets sick, and then he will not give up. And he never he never forgets what the what the fight is about, what the glorious cause means, and this, too is of the utmost importance. This really wasn't even a war for independence when it started. No, it was not. They were fighting for their rights as freeborn Englishmen mm-hmm. and it wasn't until after that speech of the kings that we talked about earlier came to light, the people began to say, well, this is not this is not an a family squabble anymore. Mm-hmm. This is a war, mm-hmm. and why don't we just go for independence? And what's so interesting to me is that three of the principal characters in this whole drama are Quakers: uh, Nathaniel Green um, Thomas Mifflin, who was the, the hero of the yes. of the successful retreat from mm-hmm. one of the heroes from the successful retreat in Brooklyn, and Thomas Paine, mm. and uh, th- they put aside their pacifist feelings. Uh, because they felt that some wars are necessary, and uh, that's a remarkable statement. It is, and and uh, Payne writes, "The sun never shined
0: on a cause of greater worth." Wow, you have read many of the letters of George Washington. I have. Uh, he wrote many letters, even during this time frame, even as I mean, yeah. on the road, so to speak. He wrote right? nearly a thousand letters in this course of this one year. Think of that. What is what is your overall impression from reading the, that court? Was it to Martha? Who was it to? No, unfortunately, uh, Martha destroyed all the
1: letters that she wrote to him and that the general wrote to her, and so we have nothing except for three letters, which um, she somehow put a put aside in the book somewhere and forgot where they were, and thank goodness because one of them is, is a letter in which he's saying, "I am not adequate for this job." Hmm. But uh, destiny seems to be in control. I'm in the hands of destiny. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a very powerful, very eloquent letter. Mm -hmm. The man only had about the equivalent of a fifth grade education. Experience had been his great teacher in life, Mm -hmm. but he was very intelligent, and he knew that a leader has to not only act the part, but but have the appearance of a leader. So while he's in command of that ragtag, motley, rabble in arms trying to keep them together and he's resplendent in a beautiful perfectly tailored uniform he's Mm -hmm. always the figure of the leader rides a big horse and sits the sits a horse uh, like a gentleman should but with some leaders it stops there yes that's right (laughs) but um there's a wonderful moment at the end of the of the year where it's all over i mean it's just Washington himself even says, I think the game's pretty near up. Mm -hmm. And there's a fellow named Billy Tudor, William Tudor, who was madly in love with a young woman named Delia Jarvis back in Boston. And she was the daughter of Tories, loyalists. And he had been John Adams' law clerk, but he'd signed up and became Washington's adjutant general. And all all through the struggle, Delia is writing to him, why don't you give this up it's useless you're not going to win and come home we can get married and be happy happily ever after and he agrees he doesn't agree that it's a lost cause but he Mm -hmm. agrees that there's nothing more that he wants in the world than to go home and marry Julia and, and live happily ever after and on the day on Christmas day the night before the march to Trenton the crossing of the Delaware he writes back to her he says I cannot leave This good man who has sacrificed everything in the cause of his country. That's leadership. That's leadership. I cannot leave him. I will not desert him.
0: Coming up, more of our conversation with David McCullough on this edition of First Person. Hi, I'm Ed Cannon, the president of the Far East Broadcasting Company, and I'd like to invite you to join us on our podcast podcast. Until All Have Heard where Wayne Shepard and I will take you on a virtual tour around Christian ministry in the most unreached places in the world to see what God is doing through the ministry of the Far East Broadcasting Company. So listen to the new weekly podcast Until All Have Heard from FEBC. Listen at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms or go to febc.org let's return now to David McCullough, right at the beginning of your book, you have a quotation from George Washington: "Perseverance and spirit have done wonders in all ages." How appropriate huh That's, that was his, that was his motto mm-hmm. that was
1: his he lived by that, and he his actions uh, not only uh, lived up to his words, they in many cases surpassed them. Mm-hmm. And I think he was to, to a very large degree a man of action more than words and we should interpret him more in the in what he did his actions. I think he was the greatest American of all time. He set the example for leadership and service duty to the country. He understood the meanings of honor and virtue and character and his um, selflessness. If... As I mentioned in the book, and as I've sometimes said in talks I've given, that his troops felt uplifted by the fact that he was so rich. People that can't understand how that could be, mm-hmm. and it goes right back to what um, uh, Billy Tudor said: that a man who's giving up so much, their feeling was, if a man who has all this wealth no, and well, all he, this position, he came out of retirement, is good willing to. Put it all on the line, right. sacrifice. Right. Who are we to hold back?
0: That's a great example. Yes. Mm. Uh, you read. We talked about Washington's letters, but I'm uh, the research that you do. Just comment about how you go about doing what you do. Um, the, the letters, the journals, the, the letters, the journals, the uh, the diaries are
1: the are the heart of the matter. That's where you find it
0: from and the common soldier all the way up through General George yes, Washington.
1: Yes, and they've survived in surprising numbers. And, of course, to hold one of those in your own hand oh. is to make a connection that i oh. I can't describe, yeah uh, they are often very difficult to read because they were written under very adverse conditions. Mm-hmm. They're sometimes um, uh, simple to the point of almost childlike, but they can also be eloquent as any of the eloquent writing of the 18th century. And I'm sure you have to wade through a lot to find the gold here, right? Yes, but not always. Uh, Nathaniel Greene's letters, for example, mm-hmm. are pure gold from mm-hmm. start to finish virtually everyone he ever really? wrote. Uh, again, a man who only had about a fifth grade, equivalent of a fifth grade education, mm-hmm. but who never stopped, yeah. Who never lost the love of learning. That's, <laughs> that's the real point. Yeah. And um, uh, Joseph Reed's letters to his wife are superb. But, my own heart goes out to people like Joseph Hodgkins, the uh, Ipswich, Massachusetts shoemaker, and Jabez
0: Fitch, who was a uh, Connecticut farmer, yeah. isn't he the one that said he survived through the goodness of God? I survived yes, this battle absolutely, yeah, yeah. and he
1: keeps a diary under the most incredible conditions the, the days when they're in the rain or the snow and they're and they're not getting anything to eat and They've been on the march all day long, and they're exhausted. He and there's no uh, nice electric light or warm tent to sit and write your letter. And somehow or other, he's he's yeah. keeping those diary entries going, even when he's taken prisoner by the British and yeah. put on, on one of those vile prison ships. And that we mustn't picture uh, nice leather-bound journals from mm-hmm. Mark Cross or something. So whatever the, they could find a write on. The, huh? Yes, the little scraps of paper, like a little child's. School tablet, mm-hmm. and um, he must have been stuffing them into his shoes or something because it was the British didn't allow you to do that oh. because they didn't want word to get out of how wretched conditions were on, oh, okay. for the prisoners. Okay,
0: I see. Well, uh, we have a little bit of time left. There's one person who figures prominently in this story we haven't talked much about, and that's Henry Knox. Now, yes. You included him in that. Uh, those, those young men that George Washington really leaned on. Henry yes. Knox was only 25 years old when he came into service. He was a bookseller. Yeah. <laughs> he was a librarian, so to yeah. speak, right? Uh, and yet he did such uh, – he had one of the most incredible military achievements of Oh, he of had a great time. career. He
1: became yeah. Secretary of War in Washington's cabinet after Washington became president Of course, later. we all know
0: Fort Knox today. Yes, exactly. But, but tell us about uh, moving – this is early in the war, all the way back to Boston. Well, he came to Washington with an idea. Now,
1: first of all, he's he's way down the, the pecking order. And somehow or other, Washington saw him and talked to him and liked him. And when you're running an amateur army and everybody's ideas are of interest and you want all the ideas you can get and you don't care, there's no bureaucracy yet. And he came to Washington with an idea to go to the to the old Fort Ticonderoga uh, up, way up in upstate New York and bring back the guns that had been captured when Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain boys right. took the fort. The year before. But the cannon were all still there. But in winter. In, in winter. And and he's going to go up there and he's going to pull these cannon, 58 of them, all the way down the Hudson River and over the Berkshire Mountains to Boston. It's, that's nearly 300 miles. In the dead of winter through wilderness. There are no <laughs> Massachusetts Turnpike or anything. <laughs> and it's a wonderful example, Wayne, of how the solution to the problem can often be the problem. The problem is, as you said, it's winter. But Knox saw that because it was winter, therefore they could do this because they could haul it on giant sleds or sledges over the snow. And the only real setback they faced unexpectedly was when there was a sudden thaw and there was no snow. And again, as if by the finger of God, as as, uh, Washington would say, there was a blizzard. And uh, as a consequence, they hauled those guns all the way across from Ticonderoga to Boston. They put them up on Dorchester Heights in one night. And when the British general William Howe woke up the next morning, he's he's under siege, <laughs> he surprise under siege in Boston. And he looked up and saw those cannon up there on the top of Dorchester Heights. He said, "Those fellows have done in one night what my army couldn't do in three months." Mm. Mm. So that if they, if they didn't know how to drill, if they didn't have a, have a love of the military, if they had no uniforms, if they had no proper shoes or muskets, if they had no gunpowder, which they didn't, yeah. or or money, they knew how to get jobs done. They knew how to do hard work. Resourceful people. Huh? And they knew how to yoke an oxen. There were over 800 oxen involved in this business of getting the guns up there at, at night. It was one of, the, one of the remarkable turning points of the war, but it also gave them false confidence. Mm. They thought, boy, we're something. We've, we've shamed these British. We've made them sail out of the city of Boston. And, of course, the, what happened was the British come back with a vengeance. They come back with an armada of yeah. 400 ships, the biggest fleet ever sent forth to defeat a distant foe. In that At that time or at any time in before. history, right? Nobody ever seen anything like it. Not even the British had ever seen anything like it. 400 ships sail up into New York Harbor, all under sail. It was some spectacle. Mm. They landed 32,000 troops, the best troops in the world. Now, 32,000 troops was more people than the entire population of Philadelphia, which was the largest city in any of the colonies. Wow.
0: And many of them were Hessian? Many of them were Hessians.
1: Some 7,000 of them were Hessian Mercenaries. Mercenaries. And that, that really raised our anger almost as if nothing else had. How could our king, you know, the man we were devoted mm-hmm. to, go out and hire these paid killers to come and defeat us? Mm-hmm. His loyal, until recently, loyal subject. Mm-hmm. That really rankled. And they were... T- they were tough troops, and we were we were frightened. We were scared of them. Yeah. And it took us a while to get over
0: that. I'm, I know that you're hearing from people who say, I wish you'd tell the story of the whole war, and you don't. You stop with the year 1776. Yes. Where does the year end? Where does the book end? The book ends
1: with the uh, stunning surprise uh, victory at Trenton and then follows up just almost immediately in the first week of January with the— yeah. uh, Again, another success at Princeton. Now, there was a lot I wanted, of. I wanted to tell the story of the most important year in the most important conflict I in see. our history. Mm-hmm.
0: There was lots of war that took place after oh, indeed, the, the there victory was. there at yes. Trenton, but that yeah. that really was uh, suddenly there was hope, wasn't there?
1: Yes, it it, it lifted morale. It lifted morale in a, in an astonishing fashion everywhere, not just in the army, but uh, all over the country. Hmm.
0: For you personally, to to pour so much into the research and understanding, what does what it do to your own soul for these things, to understand these things?
1: Well, I feel I know them better. I feel I understand the um, human toil, sacrifice, suffering, and the devotion and courage, bravery that it took. And it makes me value what we have even more and want to do my part in my way to convey that to other people. Uh, it makes me proud to be an American. Mm-hmm. It makes me um, want very much to see that our children are educated in a more effective way so that they understand history. We, alas, are not doing a very good job of that. And it makes me um, want to know more. Mm. (laughs) I think that's Mm -hmm. uh, Mary Lee Settle, who's a wonderful historical novelist uh, and a very wise person, once said, I write to find out.
0: And I think that comes pretty close That's to a perfect wonderful. description. I want, I want to find out. Amazing insights from historian David McCullough, reflecting on what he's learned through his thorough research of the year 1776 when America was fighting for its independence. This completes our two-part interview. If you missed part one, please visit firstpersoninterview.com where it can be heard in the archive of programs. And feel free to share the link. At the same website, we'll place a link to David McCullough's book, 1776, and also a link to a previous first-person interview he did with me regarding his John Adams book. Look for those links at firstpersoninterview.com. Thanks to Moody Radio for providing the audio from this interview, which took place in 2005. And, of course, thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company for making First Person possible. FEBC's podcast, Until All Have Heard, is available on several podcast platforms and at febc.org. Learn more about this international ministry at febc.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd with thanks to my friend and producer, Joel Carlson, and thank you for listening to First Person.